Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. It's the baking hot week ending Friday 8th of September and this is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's Global Goals themed show, we'll be catching up with the aptly titled Chief Purpose Officer from the International Sailing Competition Sail GP, who gives us her inspirational story about using the power of athletes to turn the dial on climate action. It's not about the winners and losers, although you incentivize it. It really is about everyone working together. So I think to make it less competitive, you share data so everyone learns together. You educate them. You celebrate, you know, not just the winners, people who've got the most improved. And then you've got to collaborate to solve these problems. I mean, sport has to collaborate with all different sectors, athletes with other sport that drive collaboration into the way that you're operating it. We'll then be speaking with the Chief Executive of the Research Institute for Disabled Consumers, who gives us some amazing insights into how we can assure the global transition to electric vehicles is accessible and equitable. By 2035, up to 50% of disabled drivers or passengers with disability will be either partially or wholly reliant on public charging points. So we're talking about one and a half million people who, for one reason or another, electric vehicles are not a option for them at the minute. There are very few accessible charging points. Plus, we'll be reflecting on the summer that never was, delivering up a much-needed Desnes debrief, and the moment we've all been waiting for will be taking a spin of the SDG Wheel of Fortune for a special game to close off the show. This could go horribly wrong, but all of that and more covered in this week's episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on when you're listening to us. Welcome to Sustainability Uncovered. Edie's publisher, Luke Nichols, here in the podcast studio, which I'm delighted to say is fitted with air conditioning as it's currently about 28 degrees outside. So on the exact day that schools finally go back, summer's finally decided to kick in. It does look like we're in for another sizzling September here in the UK, a bit like we had last year. And just like the schools returning, the Edie team have reunited here for episode 11 of the pod. It's been few episodes that we were last all together um, because I'm pleased to say that for this episode I'm joined in a hybrid fashion by uh, the three amigos of Climate Action, RED's content editor Matt Mace, deputy editor Sarah George and senior conference producer Jade Burnett. Now for anyone who's old enough to get that three amigos reference um, I'll go to the dusty bottoms of the team that is Matt Mace who is joining us virtually from home today. Matt, uh, hello, how are you coping without the luxury of, of air conditioning? Yeah, it's, uh, it's hot in my house. Um, Get well soon, Wally. That's the name of the dog. Um, 
Right, great stuff. Back into the real world then here in the studio. Deputy editor Sarah, let's start with you because I guess not only are you coping with the intense heat around us at the moment, but there's also quite an intensity of stories to have been covering at the moment. Looks like you're in for a busy week. It does, to be honest. I know you've talked about back to school. Um, it's also back to school for the whole parliament who are back this week and it feels like it should be back to school given the amount of controversy that has been brewing over recent weeks which does all look set to explode um, potentially in the next few days and then on a global level we've got a big climate summit in Africa to keep track of this week um, and are keeping our eye out for the UN um, stock take on the Paris Agreement so lots coming up on the horizon and that's not to mention some of the exciting stuff that we're doing all of which will probably need copious amount of coffee mm. for, for me <laughs> and Jay bought me one this morning but Luke it's your turn next. Yeah. Yeah, a lot going on. Um, don't know how close an eye you guys have been keeping on X or, or Twitter, depending on how big a fan of Elon Musk you are. But um, you've got Desnes trending, you've got the Africa Climate Summit, you've also got Burnett's back, hashtag trending. Because also joining us here in the studio, we've got senior conference producer Jade. Welcome back to the studio after taking a, a summer off. Where have you been? Where hasn't she been? Where haven't I been? No, actually, I have been working. Uh, summer's quite a busy time in the life of Edith's uh, event producer. So. Um, I have been working on the development of ED24, which is ED's flagship climate action event taking place in March next year. Um, hosted two advisory board meetings last week, which were really great. And then, of course, yeah, in between that, I went to a surf and yoga retreat in Lisbon. And uh, after that, I reversed all of the health benefits by going to a festival in the UK. Mm. So I did squeeze those in, but mostly it's been, it's been work. Good. Um, yes, it has been a busy and fun summer for the UD team, I'm sure many of our listeners as well. And with that in mind, I want to start in a usual fashion with a quick fire roundup of the, the hottest sustainability stories of the past few weeks, just to sort of get us back up to speed and, and firmly into back to school mode. So each of you have hopefully brought a standout story of the moment or of the last couple of weeks to enlighten us with a kind of 30 second excerpt. Matt, let's start with you. What's your need to know story for this episode of the pod? Yeah, so um, I had a look back um, through the most reads um, for the last kind of couple of weeks just to kind of refresh my memory. It always feels like August can be a bit of a, a lull in terms of news, but actually it was it was quite full on um, this year, a lot going on. But the story that really took um, uh, my eye and also picked up quite a few reads amongst our, our readers was the announcement that a new UK business climate hub had uh, been launched uh, with an overarching aim to support uh, 5.5 million SMEs uh, in the UK to reduce energy costs and forge a path to net zero um, emissions. Uh, we obviously know that setting a net zero target is a challenge in itself, actually delivering it um, is just a huge transformation of business and, and a lot of SMEs do not have the resources, basically, whether personal, human, or um, financial knowledge base to actually do that. Um, and that this is going to be an incredibly important part of the, the overall transition in, in the UK is for SMEs to basically play their part. They basically are the supply chains for the multinationals. So this um, new hub has been launched with the assistance from the Net Zero uh, Council. It's got a free carbon calculator for SMEs to utilise and a kind of suite of tools to help businesses in measuring, tracking uh, and reporting emissions. And it has also uh, advice and kind of booklets on everything from 
switching to greener supplies, uh, reducing transport emissions, investing in low-carbon technologies like EV charge points and, and solar panels as well. And I just think it's um, going to be an incredibly useful resource uh, for the UK's overall net-zero transition. Mm, yeah, so needed, isn't it, considering all the kind of reports and surveys we've seen come through over the years talking about that, not just an action gap, but a kind of awareness gap among the smaller end of the scale on businesses in terms of just not even knowing where to start with net zero, what it even means for their organisation or their supply chain. So it's definitely a, been a long time coming, that one. And speaking of things that are needed in the net zero space, Sarah, I think that takes us on to the, your standout story. Sure. So like Matt, I had a look back at the news archives and saw what was popular and I picked something that as soon as I saw the story, I knew everyone would go mad for it because it's super exciting innovation. Um, so Jaguar Land Rover has teamed up with Wix Engineering to develop one of the UK's biggest energy storage systems, um, all made up from second life car batteries. So essentially they're batteries that are taken from Jaguar I-PACE electric cars, um, where the capacity is dipped below what's needed to operate a car. Um, and they're taken and transformed so they can hold energy from a solar and wind park in the Midlands. Um, there's about 30 batteries in place at the moment, but they're looking to add up to 90 batteries. So a super exciting innovation, I thought. Indeed, yeah. If Jaguar want to lend us, you know, an iPace just to sort of test this thing out at some point, then uh, <laughs> be all ears for that. Great. OK, and Jade, uh, amidst all your festivaling, ED24ing, many stories catch your eye? Yeah, so last month, um, Ecuadorians voted to halt the development of all new oil wells in the Amazon. Um, so the referendum will safeguard the Yasuni National Park, which is one of the most biodiverse regions of the planet. Uh, and in doing that, the move will keep 726 million barrels of oil in the underground. Underground. Mm. Not the underground, <laughs> not right around the tube. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's fascinating. So that's one of those stories that can quite easily just go completely missed or under the radar, right? But the actual impact of it, especially if other countries were to follow suit, and that's what needed, right? It's momentum building globally. Matt, do you know why Ecuador is called Ecuador? Um, no. Sarah? Is it because it's on the equator yeah. or below the equator? Yeah, I'm not taking part in the quiz later, but point for Sarah, yeah. Jade enlightened me with that one earlier. You can have a special point for that. But yeah, it's on the equator. I was wondering if you're going to give me credit. I'm sure that's dislodged an actual useful bit of information. <laughs> <laughs> they say every time you learn something, you forget something. So. Yeah, forget the story. It was just the, the fun fact at the end. Um, Right, well, that's the enlightening introduction out of the way. So we're raring to go. Um, Sarah, as our kind of long-standing podcast secretary and planner, perhaps you can explain the theme for this episode and, and what's coming up. I mean, you're giving me flashbacks of every podcast I've ever done, but I will try and concentrate on the one at hand. Um, so essentially, we have decided here at EDHQ that it is SDG September. Later in the month, on week beginning 18th September, we're going to be hosting a week-long Focus week of content and events all about the um, the global goals um, and in the lead up to that we are delivering this podcast and then another special edition of the podcast um, tracking progress towards these goals which cover all manner of topics we could have we could have covered any manner of topics to be honest um, but I'm delighted to have lined up experts in clean air energy transition accessibility and sustainable sport um, over this week and next. Great, yeah, so we're covering as much of the 17 global goals as we possibly can in, in a two-part episode. Um, and Sarah, you've been a bit of a one-woman 
powerhouse for the episode because I was looking at the notes earlier and it looks like you're conducting all of the interviews across both episodes of the show. So we're going to hand straight over to you. Where are you taking us first? Yes, so please do bear bear with me. I will say that the other two have been busy working, but they've been squirrelling away and typing while I've been um, speaking to these people and recording these great interviews. Um, our first interviewee is Fee Morgan, who is from Sale GP. She is their chief purpose officer. Um, if you're not familiar with Sale GP, it's a global um, boating racing league that's been going for four seasons. Would recommend having a look at some clips if you're able. Um, so Fee is on hand to talk to us about how you can line sport with the SDGs and how you can use the advocacy and the voice and the visibility of athletes for better engagement with these issues that are sometimes really global and really big and really hard to, to break down and identify with. Mm. Yeah, a huge fan of Sail GP and what Fiona and her team are doing there, so looking forward to this one. So here's Sarah's chat with Sail GP's Chief Purpose Officer, Fiona Morgan, in full. Yes, so lots of alliteration for this next part of the podcast, Sport Sailing and the SDGs. Um, it's great to be on the phone with a good friend of Edie's, Fiona Morgan, Chief Purpose Officer at Sail GP for this part of the episode. So Fiona, how are you doing? I'm good. Just back from holiday, kids back at school, rearing to go, lots of impact to have. So no, I'm really good, energised. I'm trying to get into that September feeling, but this heat wave that we're having this week has really squashed my dreams about, you know, pumpkin spice um, oh. and fuzzy socks and things. <laughs> oh, it will come. It will come. You know what Britain's like. Britain's summer never lasts that long. So don't worry. I know. It will come and then it will stay for six months and we'll all be bored about it. Um, now, I know that Edie and GP are super familiar with each other, great friends and working on some exciting stuff together over the next few months. But we might have some people that are listening that aren't super aware of GP. Um, so it'd be great if you could um, let everyone know who GP are and, and what you're up to. Definitely. So GP is a new sport. We're the most exciting racing on water. So think Formula One but flying above the water. So flying boats, they're called catamarans and they're powered by nature, so powered by the wind. We're a global championship, so uh, we feature national teams, very kind of short and iconic races in cities across the world. And we were born with a purpose at the heart. So because we're only in season four, we really started differently. So we were able to look at what we wanted to achieve from a kind of impact perspective. And the three pillars of GP are technology, entertainment and sustainability. So uh, it does make my, my role easier, but it's uh, looking at how you can do sport and do it better. Yeah, it's a super exciting role to, to be in. And I wanted to get your view on seeing as we're speaking about the SDGs, Goal 14, Life Below Water. So Sail GP is obviously um, a company that's super involved with the ocean. Um, as you'd imagine, marine advocacy is a big part of, of that. So how do you look at your contribution to the SDGs and in particular that that all essential number 14? Yeah, um, so I suppose to go backwards, um, my role before this was at Sky, obviously in the bigger picture team, and um, we really felt that we had to all showcase the SDGs and really help communicate it and make sure everything you do is baked in the strategy. So from day one, we looked at how are we going to operate at GP. We deliver against 14 um, of the 17 SDGs at the moment, and it was baked into kind of day one. Um, and then from season two onwards, we actually showcased the two focus areas for Sail GP, which actually isn't life below water. We focused on the two biggest, I suppose, material impacts we felt we could have, which is climate action. 
we felt as a sailing league in a global event, we wanted to look at how do we communicate climate action and that kind of transition, the new world we need to get in, how we need to operate differently. So we had that and obviously clean energy um, on all boats. So we displayed the SDGs and we really looked at how do we um, showcase uh, what we're doing behind those. We're not perfect, you know, we can't do them all our own, but how do we really bring them to life? Like you said, not calling them STGs, but looking at power by nature. What does that mean for people in their everyday life? What does it mean for marine innovation uh, in sailing? So from day one, we did that. And then what got really exciting is, so the stern plates of the boats are the behind the boats. I don't know if we could put pictures on the um, podcast, but it's kind of the behind the boats and they get great broadcast coverage. So, you know, hundreds of millions of people were seeing these and then we communicated why they were there. Our teams, obviously we have national teams, we have a British team, we have an Australian team, New Zealand team, they all said they wanted their own sustainable development goals because part of working on it, they got to understand what the goals are, they got invested in the goals, each of our team has a purpose. So again, we'll talk about the Impact League, but as part of the Impact League, it's all about looking at what can sport do beyond winning kind of what's redefining performance and so they all have their own purpose what they want to do and they all really focus on what sustainable development goal that purpose really delivers against and so then they had to put in a case so kind of a, a robust case study to me and my team to say why they deserve to have that sustainable development goal on their stern plate and what impact they'll have and some people didn't get to have one so we we wanted to make sure it's robust and they were actually delivering against that and you'll see so some of our teams you know like we talked about have life below water because they really believe of ocean conservation in new zealand our first impact league winners or our danish team who really look at kind of plastic pollution and sustainable building materials like that kind of how that affects the marine pollution so we've always I suppose I felt been a showcase for the development goals and I think that's really important to do that um, because we need people to understand them and we're lucky people in sport look at sport they watch it it's tribal we can tell a story and we can tell it in an exciting way so there's so much we're doing I mean I can kind of bring to life some of what the teams are doing but I think to get across we really take responsibility to showcase the goals and really proud of, of what we're doing. That's super interesting because we do hear from different businesses saying, you know, sometimes putting the um, the imagery doesn't really work. People don't know what that is. They just want to hear about something um, like, you know, healthier fish stocks, healthier coral reefs. That makes more sense yeah. um, to them. But I totally get how if you're going for sport and broadcasting, uh, um, that that language might might be working. Um, yeah. I think it's it's the globalness of it so we're a global championship mm -hmm. so I think having the global goals as kind of a framework behind us has really helped us focus and helped our teams understand um and I feel proud they feel proud of delivering against the sustainable development goal you know so it kind of gives them that end target so I think it's a mixture like you said you know we don't talk about them all the time we talk about them sometimes but we do visually showcase them a lot because we want people to um, engage and understand them or think what is that on the back of their boat you know google it and um, we work with project everyone and obviously the un very closely and um, yeah try to help them and support them to tell the story as much as we can that makes complete sense and i wanted to touch on as well that you mentioned that it's no good essentially just plastering this on a boat or in most other businesses cases in their report or on an advert you have to check that so i wanted to get your view on essentially how you check what teams are doing and measure impact and you mentioned the impact league there so I think we'd be remiss not to introduce the impact lead league to the readers and talk about how you assess team impact when as you mentioned you've got teams from all over the world yeah 
So we are the only sport in the world that has two trophies. And so we have a trophy for racing on the water, but we have a trophy for the planet. So that was the Impact League. And the whole idea was redefining performance, that our athletes should operate sustainably and showcase what they're doing, and they should get um, awarded for that. So it's incentivizing sustainable behavior across social and environmental. So it's everything from how they travel to events to the big ideas, you know, what's their big innovation idea about how they think they can do things differently to how are they using their voice? That's got a lot of points in collaboration because you wanna kind of try to make sure that they're communicating and collaborating as, as well as looking to win the Impact League. So we're in season three of the Impact League. We've evolved it. You can never keep it the same. Teams have got better. They're very competitive. If you get an athlete and incentivize them, it gets pretty nasty pretty quick. So. We've had quite a kind of um, dramatic impact league, um, you know, some protests, you know, accusations of cheating. But what I'm really proud of is the impact, like you said, and, and what they have to do is we have the impact leagues audited. So we have an auditor and we have judges after each of the submissions and then they do an impact report at the end of the season. So we can probably, you know, showcase some of the team's impact reports, but they, you know, and then we audit it and say, okay, you say you did this. So let's talk about it. Let's speak to the NGO you're working with. Let's make sure, you know, that's an accredited global impact that you have. And when you look at that across all of our teams, it's pretty phenomenal. So through the Impact League, you, they all have a purpose partner or an NGO from Parley to Live Ocean to, um, you know, other partners, One Ocean Foundation. Um, you look at all the money we've invested through winning the Impact League into these territories um, and it's great. Yeah, it, you know, it really is. Um, it wouldn't happen if you didn't incentivize it. It would happen maybe in five years. But I think it's that incentivization which is key. I wanted to touch on as well, Fee, that we spoke earlier this year, and I think you mentioned that you said that some of the teams actually said they wanted the rules to be more strict and the auditings to be more stricter. They wanted incentives to go even further. So what was yeah. that like? I know that's the great thing about sustainable action, you know, and it's about taking people a journey. So when we look at the Impact League, we get feedback from the athletes and say, how is it working? What do you like? What don't you like? And a lot of them said, we know how to segregate our bins. We know how to keep our energy consumption down. You know, they felt like it, it wasn't big enough impact. So they wanted that to be business as usual, which is an amazing after like a season. They were like, that's too easy. You know, we should be doing that. What what are the bigger, you know, ideas we can do and problems we can solve? So that's why this season, you know, we have an impact league at every event, but then we have four focus areas. And so it gives teams, you know, months, a few months to really focus on right waste, or climate action, how are you going to reduce your footprint as a team and really come up with some big ideas with partners and NGOs or other teams to solve those problems. And they kind of present them back a bit like Dragon's Den style to um, sustainable celebrity judges. Um, and then hopefully one day, you know, we're looking for partners for the Impact League um, and hopefully we'll have a partner and then we'll, you know, have some investment funds behind some of these ideas um, and one day I want the prize money to be the same. So one day I'd love to, we have a million pounds on water, which is the highest prize money in sailing. And one day I'd like that to be in the Impact League and that money going back into doing good. So yeah, we're pretty ambitious, but, um, but you've got to take it seriously. Like you said, have to have impact. You have to audit it. You have to make sure there's measurable um, you know, outcomes out of the competition. Of course. And I guess that working in sport, encouraging friendly or sometimes even not so friendly competition would be fairly natural to sports people. But I'm sure we have people listening that are thinking I'd love to do something like this for my own business. So what transferable learnings have you got from the Impact League so far? 
how can someone listening maybe get that right balance between competition and collaboration? Yeah, it, it is interesting. It's all behavioural science. And so probably I'd do things differently if I went back. But I think look at the challenges in your business that everyone can relate to. So, you know, the travel, if you're a global sport like us, everyone, most people travel and you have to reduce that. So look at those areas and then incentivize what you do. I think it's not about the winners and losers. I think that's the thing. Although you incentivize it, it really is about um, everyone working together and we share the data. So when people submit, you know, how they travel to an event, other teams can see it so they can learn from it. So the next event they can get better. So I think to make it less competitive, you share data so everyone learns together. You educate them, so get you know people to talk to them about the issue or share papers on the issue so they're learning as they go. You celebrate you know not just the winners, people who've got the most improved or you know the the best innovation or the best idea. Um, and then you we do like I said two criteria: one is using your voice, and two is collaborating. So they get you know sometimes up to thirty to sixty points for collaborating. So we actually try to incentivize collaboration through the Impact League because. Although you want teams to be competitive, to do more, you want to give them, like you said, definitely that collaborative mindset. Because for me, you've got to collaborate to solve these problems. I mean, sport has to collaborate with all different sectors, athletes with other sports. We all need to learn from each other. And, you know, so incentivize it, make it serious, but drive collaboration into the way that you're operating it. That makes complete sense. The UN set the SDGs up saying, you know, that no one can do that alone. And likewise, no one should be trying to do one goal without doing the others. So they're even collaborative in the way it's set up. Yeah. And um, the halftime campaign, I don't know if we'll come and talk about it, but, you know, the UN, uh, they've got a halftime campaign coming out about halftime, obviously, for the delivery of the goals. And it's funny, it's a sport analogy, you know, you kind of think like that is why sport need to use their voice, you know, sport, fashion world because people listen to, listen to us. And I always think sport can be the comeback. You know, if we can educate our fans, like incentivize our athletes to be better, engage our fans to be better, we will, you know, help the world that, that kind of comeback. So I think, you know, people probably sometimes don't think sport's relevant in sustainability, but actually I think it's more relevant than ever in the kind of consumer engagement perspective. Of course, and this is why it's been so great to have, as you say, sports voice on this podcast and amplify that even a little bit more but Fee I think we're just about out of time for our recording so thank you so much for all your time and for sharing all those learnings about everything Impact League. No problem thanks for having me. Fascinating chat thank you very much to Fiona uh, and a couple of shameless ED plugs on that note because you can read a full editorial summary of SailGP's Impact Report live on the ED website right now we'll include a link in the episode description and Fiona will be delivering up a case study as part of a special SDG online event taking place later in the month, which I'm going to leave Jade to share some details on later. Uh, right, I can see Matt in, on the team's call slowly starting to wilt there at home, so it's a good time for us to take a very quick break. But don't go anywhere because when we return, we're going to be giving you that much-needed Desnes debrief on some green policy changes. We've got our interview with the Research Institute for Disabled Consumers, and we'll be taking a spin on the SDG Wheel of Fortune. See you in a sec. You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered, brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank. The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this podcast series as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. 
To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered. I'm joined here still in the studio by the Powerpuff Girls of Green Business that are Matt, Sarah and Jade. Uh, and during the break, I just had a spin of our SDG Wheel of Fortune. And I'm ashamed to admit that I'm wildly excited about this episode closer, as lowbrow as it is. Um, anyway, we're keeping Edie's brow as high as possible for now, because over the past few weeks, there have been some considerable changes in developments and rumours regarding the UK government's Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. Sarah, you've been keeping track of them all, as you said earlier on. Usually this is the part of the podcast where I issue you with a, a time challenge and you roll your eyes, but you've volunteered yourself for this one. So... For those of us who have been out lapping up the rain over the past few weeks, you're going to get us up to speed with a, a two-minute Desnes debrief. Two minutes, is that right? Two minutes sounds good. good, yeah. Do you want some music? If it's going, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course it's going. <laughs> um, glad you said that because I've spent my afternoon sifting through YouTube's royalty-free music archive to find this absolute banger titled Educational School Promo. I'm um, sure you're familiar <laughs> yes, with this one, Jay. I mean, it's been doing the rounds on the festival circuit, this one. So, Sarah, are you ready? For our two-minute Desnes debrief, it's over to you. Okay, so we're starting on Friday the 1st of September. Ben Wallace stepped down as Defence Secretary, prompting Ishi Sunak to begin a mini-cabinet reshuffle to help fill that gap and some others. He selected Grant Shapps to replace Wallace in the defence position. Shapps had led Desnes since it was created in February when Rishi Sunak split the business and energy parts of Bayes, the industrial strategy part and the trade part too. Um, so Shapps has been something of a controversial figure, continually backing oil and gas. The new secretary is Claire Cotino, who is a junior minister who has never held a cabinet position. She was elected at the last general election in 2019. She has a massive to-do list in the energy security brief, looking at the energy price crisis, and then also looking at some of the green policy controversies out of Westminster over the summer. Um, by the time this goes live, Rishi Sunak may have made U-turns on the effective ban on onshore wind, and he may have also implemented new restrictions on solar and on EV manufacturing, so watch this space. So that's everything that's going on at Desnes, but it bears noting that Labour has also done a shadow cabinet reshuffle, if I have time. Jim McMahon has stepped down from the position of shadow secretary for the environment, food and rural affairs, the one-on-one opposition role for Therese Kofi at DEFRA. Keir Starmer has chosen Steve Reid for the brief. Reid has been an MP since 2012 and held several other roles in the shadow cabinet, sorry, but none relating to the environment. He does, however, have a long history of working against local littering, pollution and fly-tipping. Um, Ed Miliband has remained in his position relating to climate change. Have I got time? You've got another 10 seconds. Oh, and I've wasted them by asking you how much time um, I have. But essentially loads going on in government, loads more to come this week and next. Um, so do keep an eye and spare a coffee for your local political journalists because I'm sure they're very busy this month. There we go, free education here on the Sustainability Uncovered podcast. Round of applause for Sarah. That's not, that's not clap, oh, okay. that. That's clapping a little bit. Oh, he's patting himself yeah, on the back. He's patting his, <laughs> pat his chest. I was, I was on mute. Right. I, I thought that wouldn't make sense anyway. So. That's fine, we saw you patting your chest. Um, <laughs> right, thank you for that, Sarah. Uh, your time in the limelight continues straight on now because you're going to take us to our second and final interview of the show. Uh, what have we got? 
Yes, so I've got an interview with Gordon McCulloch, who's Chief Executive at the Research Institute for Disabled Consumers. And you might ask what this has to do with environmental sustainability. Um, well, essentially, Gordon and I sat down to talk about how we can make sure that the transition to electric vehicles doesn't exclude disabled drivers or those driving with disabled passengers, given that they are um, honestly around around a quarter of the population in the UK and various other countries. So we can't have sustainable development um, without access for everyone, essentially. Mm. So that's what I'm here to talk about with Gordon. Yeah, really interesting angle into the kind of social sustainability aspects of the net zero transition then, something I hadn't considered myself. So keen to listen into this one. Let's get straight into it. Here's Sarah's chat with Gordon McCulloch, the Chief Executive of the Research Institute for Disabled Consumers in full. Yes, yeah, so as I'm sure um, the team will have mentioned in the studio, it's really important that we focus on the intersection between social and environmental sustainability, um, and that is why the SDGs really exist. But beyond that really big global framework, what does that actually mean for people that might need special consideration when accessing the low carbon services and technologies of the future? Here to help me understand that, I'm delighted to have Gordon McCulloch on the phone. He is the Chief Executive at the Research Institute for Disabled Consumers. So, Gordon, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you very much, Sarah, for inviting me to come along to talk about the work we do at RIDC. Great. It's super important work. And I must admit um, that I'm only just discovering some of this work. So I'm sure some of our listeners are too. So for those unfamiliar with the RIDC, it'd be great to have a quick introduction. Of course, um, RIDC has been around in various different states and forms for over 50 years. We are a research charity that is disabled-led, and our work is really quite simple in what we try and do. We try and get businesses, government, charities, or anybody who wants to make their products and services more inclusive and accessible to include and to listen to and engage with disabled people. So we have a panel, a consumer panel of just about 4,000 disabled people right across the UK. It's a pan-disability panel, so it covers all different types of impairment, all different backgrounds and different ages of people. And really, they are the, the key to everything that we do. We don't design or do any research without the involvement of the panel. And it's it's sort of they are our jewel in the crown and if anybody's listening who knows somebody who would like to be involved in it our website ridc.org.uk is where you can find out more about us but also where you can sign up to the panel fabulous we often get questions about how to make sure your strategy is inclusive and it, it always comes back to who's in the room um at the beginning so great to hear about that work um and gordon we're hopping on today really to essentially look at essentially as we transition to a low carbon future um how accessible is that future and how can we make sure the answer is very accessible? Um, and really a good place to start, I think, is about electric vehicles. Um, in the UK, we're hearing that a lot of people are saying they're not accessible because of upfront costs. Um, people who can't afford the costs are rallying against the ULES or asking the government for more grants. Um, but beyond that, are they accessible to those with disabilities? What What is that picture like in the UK at the moment? So it's a, it's a really interesting question, Sarah. And I suppose if you can indulge me a little bit of um, going back in the past. So back in 2018, one of my colleagues uh, was out with her friend who wasn't disabled, but was just getting a little bit older, like all of us. And she watched her 
struggle with the cables for her electric vehicle, trying to plug them into an on-street parking uh, charging point, which led her to think, well, actually, if my friend is struggling, how are disabled drivers coping with using public charging points if they have an electric vehicle? So we were the first in the world to look at the inaccessibility of public charging points. And that is sort of the key to the inaccessibility of future sustainable solutions around transport for disabled people. The price of the vehicles, the range of vehicles available, a lot of that tends to get covered by mobility. So mobility has about 650,000 scheme users who will get all those upfront costs paid for them. And they now have about 14% of their cars on their scheme that are electric vehicles. So that's increasing. So access to the vehicle and the vehicle themselves in terms of its accessibility, it's no worse or any better than it was before, but it's how disabled people access charging points. So again, Motability have been really leading the way in this and they did some research that suggested by 2035, up to 50% of disabled drivers or passengers with disability will be either partially or wholly reliant on public charging points. So we're talking about one and a half million people who, for one reason or another, electric vehicles are not a option for them at the minute. There are very few accessible charging points. The main issues tend to be around the weight of the cables, that transferring out of a car if you're a wheelchair user to get a cable out of a boot if it's untethered, or the force it's required to plug the cables into either the car or the charging point. The environment around the charge points themselves have bollards, there aren't drop curbs, so getting close to the, the actual charging point is very difficult. Parking, there isn't the space to transfer out of the car. Other issues relate to sort of charge the payment screen. Often it's very high up or often it's tilted away from somebody who might be lower down because of their wheelchair. And also the issues around planning. So planning a journey, not knowing where an accessible charging point is. So at our IDC, we, we pulled all of this information together with our panel going out and testing charge points. Um, and then Motability and a, a, another charity called Designability did more work around design principles and guidance. And that has led to the BSI uh, standard PSA 188. 1899, which sets guidance for charge point operators to make sure that when they're installing new public charge points, they're accessible. So that's sort of a bit of history about why they're inaccessible. It's more to do with the infrastructure rather than the vehicles themselves. And as everybody knows, the population is aging um, and 47% of those who are over 65 identify as having a disability. So as much as this inaccessibility relates to disabled people. It also relates to the general population more widely as we all get older. And if this is to be the main way that people can make a sustainable choice in terms of their own personal transport, then I think that the charging network and the standards by which those uh, charge points are designed, where they're placed, um, the planning and information about where they are, there's a significant amount to work to do 
for electric vehicles to be a viable option for a significant number of disabled people. That will make sense. I mean, I, I, I did cover when the EV infrastructure strategy launched recently, so it's clear that the government's starting to think about that. That covered things like making sure payments are fair, making sure you don't need 20 different loyalty cards to to pay and helping to match with map sorry which pay points are um functioning and which ones are free but but was that enough and how could that be built upon gordon to solve some of the challenges that that you've mentioned i think that that infrastructure strategy talks about the work that mobility and bsi have put in place but it's voluntary it's not mandatory and so the incentives for the ev infrastructure to become um accessible is based on nothing more at the moment than goodwill and trying to do the right thing. I think from our point of view and from disabled drivers point of view, I think if it had been more uh, forthright in terms of setting standards that were at the very least uh, mandatory in terms of new developments, then I think EVs become an option for people. It also um, it can't, you can't really look at the electric vehicle charging infrastructure in isolation. You also need to consider the alternatives in terms of public transport. And for a lot of disabled people, public transport is not currently an accessible option for them either. So in our work, we've seen um, a big demand for disabled people to want to have an electric vehicle. Something like 60% of our panel said if it was viable, they would want one because they want to do their bit in terms of sustainability, but they're feeling excluded from being able to make that contribution. So 60% want an electric vehicle, but 57% feel that they're excluded from using transport modes, car, bus, train, that reduces their environmental impact. So the infrastructure strategy is good, but it only goes so far. And I think if we're to try and pull together all of these strands around sustainable choices, particularly for disabled people. I think there has to be a stronger line on creating accessible modes and accessible infrastructure for people to actually have a choice rather than have to compromise. That makes complete sense. And I'm glad you mentioned um, public transport as as well, because the advice from the Climate Change Committee again and again has been that the UK can't just replace all car trips um, like for like with EVs, um, it wouldn't be the most affordable option, it wouldn't be great for public health, um, there would be a lot to do with sourcing the materials for all the vehicles, but instead we need more people to think about taking um, especially shorter journeys with public transport and active transport. Um, and a lot of groups have been saying that even for those without a disability, this isn't enough. Buses are coming too infrequently outside of London, um, they're too expensive, rail's more expensive. Um, as well. So I'm sure there's a cost piece there, but what else could be done to really send a, a signal that the modal shift needs to be accessible as well? Well, again, that's it's a brilliant question and it's, it's a very difficult and tricky area to crack. I'm very proud to say that RIDC is part of the National Centre for Accessible Transport. Again, this is a uh, it's an evidence centre that has been funded by Mobility, who have really taken a lead in trying to shift the agenda forward around inclusive transport and active travel. Um, the NCAT, National Centre for Accessible Transport, is a consortium that's led by Coventry University, and our singular mission is to try and provide the evidence and the insights from disabled people, from transport planners and from academia to inspire and get others to change practice. 
and that covers all different modes. There was a piece of research that looked said that 30 disabled people take 38% fewer journeys than non-disabled people on public transport, and that is solely down to the barriers that are put in place that prevent disabled people from getting on a train, using a bus, or indeed active travel, particularly around cycling, is a growing area and a lot more disabled people want to use that as an alternative. But the infrastructure in terms of bike lanes, the kit doesn't exist or it's very, very expensive. So the evidence centre is trying to provide the, the insights and the inspiration that will bring together um, people to try and solve these issues around inaccessible and uh, non-inclusive transport. However, it's a massive challenge because the transport sector is very fragmented in the UK. And we're beginning to look at, you know, how does it feel for somebody who's disabled living in a rural area where there's maybe one bus a day? It's And so the impact, as you quite rightly said, on isolation, on people's well-being, on their socialisation and just overall their contribution to communities and societies is greatly diminished. And I think that the, the ambition of the National Centre for Accessible Transport is to bring about that modal shift and bring together all the different actors in this to try and come up with something that is strategic and joined up. So again, Motability have been astonishingly supportive in trying to move things forward rather than looking at a transport provider in a particular mode and not looking how all things join together. Great, I appreciate that that's a massive challenge, especially as you say, with such a fragmented way that transport and public transport are managed in the UK. In the UK. Um, but I don't want to just leave this on sort of a challenge note and a call out to government. Um, most of our readers um, and listeners do hold responsibility for sustainability, whether that's in a company or a public sector body or some different um, kind of organisations. They're listening to this and probably could make the picture better, even if they're not um, in transport. So what would your advice to them be in terms of designing and implementing good strategies and projects which don't just drive us towards a more environmentally sustainable future, um, but make sure that that future is accessible? I think the message is a very simple one. If you're designing or coming up with a new product or service, whether that's whatever sector or field that's in, ask yourself a simple question at the beginning. Have you considered how this will impact or how disabled people will use this product or service? If you can't answer that because you haven't had the ability to engage with or speak to a disabled person, I would suggest you call us because that's exactly what we do. We will design a way that we will get the insights and the the, the views and opinions of disabled people in at the beginning of a process, not at the end when the problems have been identified and you have to go back and retrospectively fix something. And we know more than anybody else how difficult it is to get access to disabled people if you're not always working in that area and that's where we can help but what I would suggest is and we've done this with some large multinational companies has been looking at different design guidebooks and principles so that that can be embedded into their strategies around design and development right from the very beginning but what I would say is that if you design something for a disabled person in mind at the beginning it means it's accessible for everyone Good design is good design, but you can use disabled people in a way that helps as a design tool as well. If that makes sense, it's being—it's not a burden to include disabled people at the beginning. It's actually a massive advantage to any business or any 
product that might be developed. Because we're all getting older, we're all acquiring disabilities as we get older. So if you can design something for an aging population, then and you can include disabled people at the beginning, it's a sort of no-brainer, really. Um, so that would be my message. Include disabled people in whatever you're doing as early as possible. Go back, do different iterations, test things out, and then at the end, you will have a product that is accessible for everyone. Thanks, Gordon. I was keen to finish on a positive note, especially as you mentioned about your um, panel at the beginning with essentially, yeah, like hundreds and thousands of people feeding in and providing this invaluable information that's there, um, but maybe people aren't accessing. So thank you very much for all the tips and helping me cover this super important topic. My pleasure, Sarah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to Gordon and the Research Institute for Disabled Consumers. Right, now that brings us to the final part of part one of this episode of Sustainability Uncovered, if that makes any sense. And of course, as, as Jade and I know too well, um, no episode of Sustainability Uncovered is complete without a reminder of our, our knowledge limitations when it comes to sustainable business. But I'm hoping that this special version of the quiz might actually be a bit more accessible because, Sarah, you've managed to combine two of my favourite things in life, a challenge TV quiz show uh, and sustainable development. Explain what we've got. We've got the SDG Wheel of Fortune, not to be confused with catchphrase or with family fortunes. <laughs> um, so essentially, normally I would go through maybe three questions and we'd, we'd look at um, getting points across the team. This time I've got a whopping 17 questions, one relating to each um, sustainable development goal. And to choose which question I put to the ED team, we've got a Wheel of Fortune, which is online on the Tracare website. Um, you click it and it randomly spins it and gives you one of the 17 global goals. Each of these will correspond to a question. It's quite a nice idea, this, yeah. if you're willing to try and engage your company on the SDGs. Could be something that yeah. businesses out there did. Matt likes it already. OK, so you're going to ask us a question per goal as they come up. We'll all give the answers and then you'll give us the correct answer each time. So, um, Matt and Jade, notepads at the ready? Yes. 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 Good. Off you go, Sarah. Right, let's spin the wheel which should make a little noise, there it goes. Right, so we're on goal 10, reduced inequalities. You should be grateful to know that I'm not gonna ask you which goal is which number. Hmm. Um, so our question for this one is, globally, women are how many times as likely as men to report experiencing discrimination based on their sex or their gender? Is it twice as likely, three times as likely, or four times as likely? And right. we're going over the answers. We'll do a show again. of answers, four. I've gone three. Matt. I went twice as likely. Oh. Ah, so this one goes to Matt, ever the optimist. <sighs> um, it's only reported though, so that's not to say that it is only twice mm. as high, worth mentioning. Mm. Let's spin the wheel again. Going to gobble number one, no poverty. According to the World Bank, what proportion of the population are living in poverty? Is it 8%, 9% or 12%? On eight. Twelve. Yeah, I went twelve. No, no dice for anyone. It's nine percent. Uh, no, that ends a blank. No winners. I should actually be celebrating that, not the fact that it's yeah, lower than twelve. Yeah, similar to the last yeah. question. <laughs> I was angry at the fact it was only two times. Yes. And um, for context, the definition of poverty is those surviving on less than two U.S. dollars and fifteen cents per day. Wow. Yeah. So some food for thought there. Let's spin the wheel again. <laughs> it's a great little sound effect. Can we have this every week? Mm. Um, we're now on goal eight, decent work and economic growth. True or false, 
Bank account access increased significantly in developing and emerging economies since 2020. Okay, I've gone true. I've yeah. gone false. I went false. Yeah. Luke, you get the point, oh, it's true. I thought she was double bluffing us. Uh, seven in ten people now have access and four in ten opened their first bank account within the past three years. Access was made easier in a lot of places because of the pandemic. Mm. So there, there has nice. been some good stuff going on, despite how depressing a lot of this, uh, this quiz is. Mm. And we're on three. three. Yep, two yeah. more. <laughs> Goal 16, peace and justice and strong institutions. So I've got a question here relating to diversity of elected officials, which we know makes for stronger policy making. Globally, what is the average age of an elected official? So your MP or your MEP. Is it 47 years old, 51 years old or 56 years old? 51, I've gone. I've gone 51. That's 47. 47. Matt's optimistic, but no dice. It's 51. So yes. one point each for Luke and Jade. It bears noting that in the US it's older than 51. Hmm. Wow. What yeah. is it? Do you know what it is in the US? Oh, I, I didn't note it down, but I mean, if you look at things like Congress and the Supreme Court, yeah. you'll probably see that. Hmm. Um, and we've got one more spin of the wheel. So enjoy the sound effects for the last time. Goal 15, life on land. No multiple choice here. I'm out in the wild. Which country is the world's most biodiverse nation? Wow. No, no choices here. No choices. I'm going to just go really random, and like something we might not expect. America. I want Costa Rica. Is it on the Brazil. Nose? It's Brazil. Ah, it's Brazil shout. because um, because most of the Amazon is in is in Brazil. That's good guesses. There. Fast googling from Matt there. Yeah, when I looked it up, I did think, oh, I should have thought of that. But you hear so much about forest loss that you worry that it might not mm. be. But no, it's still very much Brazil. I, mean, I did almost go Ecuador after a little tidbit earlier. <laughs> right, I think it's two, two, one. Two points for Matt, two points for myself, one for Jade. All to play for, for part two of the quiz next time round. Can't wait to hear that sound again. And on that note, Sarah, um, what have we got coming up in part two? Yes, yeah, so on the next edition, we're staying on that SDG September theme, but looking at clean air and the energy transition. Um, and of course, as you've mentioned, we'll have another episode of Wheel of Fortune. I might have to do another Desnes debrief, depending on what happens in the next few days as well. Great stuff. Um, yeah, lots, lots of calm in the next week. And actually, Jade, I almost forgot the shameless plug you wanted to give on this SDG-themed episode, so take it away. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, we're hosting our Sustainable Development Action Sessions on the afternoon of the 21st of September, uh, which will feature a keynote from Steve Kenzie, uh, who'll be looking at which goals will require the most focus. And with just seven years left, we'll be hearing seven different case studies from businesses around each individual global goals. Great. Yeah. So uh, lots to look forward to. Uh, I must say a huge thanks to all of our podcast guests who featured in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. A special thanks as ever to our podcast partner, Lloyds Bank. I'm about to go and jump off the side of a building for charity. More on that in part two. Uh, but until then, it's goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. Goodbye from Jade. Farewell. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>